Welcome to Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a new podcast that's all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. Today is a special episode where Jonathan interviews worship singer-songwriter Matt Marr. You may know his songs, Your Grace is Enough and Lord I Need You. In this conversation, Jonathan and Matt discuss the topics of Catholicism, liturgy, and politics, and how they affect us today. We hope you enjoy. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, basically, you know, you were asking me, how do, how do you navigate, how, what's it like being in this world as a Catholic? Yes, and, at all these intersections that you're at. Yeah, and, and what I would say is that, you know, I worked, so my background, I feel like my story has a lot to do with with I think the way that um that I in some ways was through circumstance of life predisposition for what I'm doing mm. um or it created a, a the the sort of the 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 conditions mm-hmm. for the the personhood of who I am to be developed in such a way that it would it I would have a heart for these specific things you know I grew up in Newfoundland Canada um uh raised catholic um grew up in a in a household with um a father and an uncle who lived next door who were both very very um active in politics hmm. so my dad ran um i think three times wow. in uh, provincial elections he developed a created the the uh, publication of the minutes of the Newfoundland House of Assembly. It's called Hansard. Um, my uncle was the leader of the opposition party uh, for 25 years. Wow. Um, they both sort of campaigned with uh, or helped a man named Joey Smallwood, who is the guy who basically campaigned for Newfoundland to no longer be uh, a uh, independent country or a sort of uh, um, uh, a colonial outpost of England, but to join Canada. So, um, uh, uh, or I should say, yeah, my uncle Steve did. And, and uh, um, so it, um, it's just, I, I, so I grew up in that kind of a household and, and then I had an American mother um, and, um, my dad always had interesting people over at our house and like a real wide swath of people. So he had, you know, uh, independent, wealthy, crazy business types. And he had friends who were lawyers and he had a friend who owned an, a bed and breakfast inn. And when I was a freshman in high school, I learned how to play guitar from a uh, Bulgarian refugee. Wow. Because there was a wave of influx of refugees. And I went mm. to a Jesuit high school, which had a, uh, Gonzaga Regional High School, which had a real huge, strong um, outreach volunteer program called Viking Volunteers, where it was this m- like massive outreach where over half the student body did um, outreach to old age homes or, um, you know, uh, went to hospitals and did candy striper like like handout 
stuff like, mm. like children's hospitals or um, just just you know visit people uh, in assisted living. Um, so it, I've 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 just always had a sense that part of life and part of faith, it's part of being part of a community, is having an outward sense and a sort of a willingness or a heart for things that aren't right to be reconciled. So I think all that being said, when I had a conversion experience in my early 20s, uh, my parents got divorced and I moved with my mother to Arizona, started going back to church with my cousin. And there was a youth group movement that was kind of like Young Life at the Catholic Church. I started to get go there. Um, a bunch of people at this parish were involved in the charismatic renewal. Um, so that kind of experience of being around ca Catholic charismatics, I think, opened me up to specifically um, sort of the transformative nature of uh, of worship, mm. which is where, the, and I was already a musician. So that's where the two came into play, where all of a sudden it was, I was a musician my whole life. I was studying music in college. I was a theory and composition major, and then I got a, a scholarship at the jazz department at ASU. And so, you know, jazz is improvisatory by nature. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to charismatic prayer meetings. Wow. So, and it was this is all right around the same time that um, a lot of my uh, now sort of peers and contemporaries in England or in Texas, you know, Matt Redman or Chris Tomlin or David Crowder, these guys are college students mm -hmm. um, leading worship. And so I start hearing their music kind of gives me permission to do the same thing in my sphere. Mm. And so I think, and I, and I realize that sort of corporate, like the corporate singing of songs was something that was a common ground. Mm. Sort of became, there. what I realized was that it seemed like that maybe the Spirit of God was developing in some sense a common hymnal, mm. a shared hymnal. Some people would, jaded, would just look at it and say, maybe it was just the Christian music industry like pushing songs on the church. Mm -hmm. But um, I also, I think because of my own personal experience and sort of seeing the efficacy of how those songs changed, like, provide an environment for people's hearts and lives to be changed. Mm. It I can't necessarily be too jaded about it. Yeah. So I, I I think that 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 was all the early like all that stuff was like in was kind of like in the formation of who I was. And I think then over the years, I was very fortunate to come along at a time when and I was saying this earlier before the my uh, mic malfunction um, that I feel like I was very fortunate in the sense that um, that I was able to come along doing what I'm doing as I feel like the Spirit of God has been doing a work of mm. unity within the church, uh, mostly amongst younger generations. Yeah. So, well, that's one of the things that for me is most, and I say this very much as a fan, um, but that's been so fascinating for me about your career is that it just seems like. And I want to be careful about, like, uh, I know everybody thinks their own time is uniquely important in some way or the other. I'm sure that's an easy delusion to fall into. 
But I do feel like in terms of ecclesiology, they're just they're objectively things happening right now that were not possible, have not been possible any other time in history. It's never happened before. Never happened. And before. I because I I've, I've had this thought specifically about you. I've wondered like, could Matt Marr have happened to the world? 10 years before five, you know what I'm saying? It seems like there, there really, it does seem something like so providential about what you were coming into and the way these streams were converging that really, you know, call it providence or call it like freak cosmic accident, you know, was not possible before. Well, it's really interesting because I, I, I mean, I, first of all, I completely agree with you and a, a big part of my story, um, that I didn't, um, mentioned, but it's, you know, I ended up at this parish called St. Tim's in Mesa, Arizona, which is a Catholic parish, but it was very, very same. It's theologically, very typically, you know, it's very conservative, but liturgically, um, more progressive. And um, uh, it attracted lots of different people, and it attracted a real interesting wide range of people. So, um, like I was at that parish reading Scott Hahn, who is like a convert, who's a Presbyterian convert to Catholicism, mm -hmm. and Richard Rohr. Mm -hmm. So I was in a parish where all of these opposing, quote unquote, opposing views were being held simultaneously, which I think was actually extremely healthy yeah. because it gave me I feel like an outlook that says, wait a second. Um, it's not that there's not a wrong thing and a right thing. It's that God's in the process of sorting those things out and reconciling those things. And that really is something that takes God to do. And whenever we try to shortcut it and do it, we just generally make a mess. Yeah, it seems like, and I feel like that can be a real misconception sometimes for outsiders, especially on the evangelical side about Catholicism. It's like, I think people think of it as being so monolithic. Monolithic. That's and, literally the word know, I was going to say. It's like, and maybe like, but the truth is, it seems like the the rootedness of the tradition actually provides more space, not less, for theological diversity in a lot of ways, like on the ground. Yeah, I mean, there's, 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 uh, it, you know, and right now we're kind of seeing. Um, you know, we're seeing it really quick just to finish my thought. Yeah. Um, so I was fortunate to be in this parish and then like, cause you know, to talk about sort of like, you know, cause people say, you know, you coming along at the time you did is very, very unique. You know, John Michael Talbot has been, a, was at that parish a bunch. He, he wow. mentored basically a guy who mentored me hmm. and I got hired at this church basically through getting cast in a musical that Rich Mullins did. Wow. So, I um so I spent a I spent a month with Rich, and I spent several times around John Michael Talbot. You know, and Talbot's stories really it's crazy in the sense that here's a guy was in a legitimate country rock band called Mason Prophet. His brother becomes born again, then he becomes born again. He becomes a Christian. He signs with Sparrow, and you know, um, uh, Billy Ray Hearn signs him to a record, and then he becomes a Catholic. And Keith Green says, "You've joined the whore of Babylon." Yeah. Wow. So, so y you are absolutely correct. You know, I had a really funny encounter at a passion conference uh, several years back, where I was 
riding in an elevator by myself with uh, John Piper. Wow. And I said, uh, Dr. Piper, I There's wanna... a screenplay in this, by the way. I yeah, want, yeah, like, yeah. I, 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 it's a short film at minimum about riding in the elevator with John Piper, but please continue. I, I just <laughs> said, I want to thank you. Uh, you gave a sermon at one of these conferences in 2007, and it was in the midst of that sermon that um, the Holy Spirit told me that I was going to finally be able to quit smoking wow. because I realized it really was going to have to be a work of God. And I said, I want to thank you for that. And he said, oh, well, thank you, son. And I said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I write a lot of songs with some of these folks, and I'm a worship leader. And um, uh, he said, oh, okay. He said, what, what, where, where do you live? And I said, well, I live in Phoenix. And I was like, I work at a Catholic parish. And he just, you know, stopped. And it, but it, and I just said, I said, uh, um, well, I think before then he said, would I know one of you, would I know any of your songs? And I said, yeah, I said, Chris, Chris, um, I said, probably the biggest song you might know is Your Grace is Enough. He said, oh, yes, yeah. And I said, yeah, I said, he, and then he asked where, you, you know, you're at your, what church you at? And I said, well, I'm at a, at a Catholic parish in, in Arizona. And, and he stopped me, he's like, you wrote Your Grace is Enough. I was like, yes. He's like, the words and the music. <laughs> and I was like, yes. He's like, well, you obviously have a talent. And then the elevator opened and he walked out. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> you know, and it's it's once again, like, I think in some ways, too, like, it, uh, um, uh, you know, we we read things in the in the scriptures about God is in the business of confounding the wise. And the problem is, is that we always assume it's someone else that he's trying to confound. Right. Mm. And um, and and I and I say that with like seriously as much respect as I I can muster for for Dr. Piper because because sure. I, I think his influence is tremendous, and I mm. think and in the ways in which we obviously stand shoulder like together in agreement on things, I I. Um, have so much respect for um, how he's led out of his um, sort of ecclesial stance and wouldn't want anything less, you know. And I, I, th I think that's a, a big important thing, you know, when you talk about all this is that it's like um, you, we don't need people to not be who they are. Yeah. Because we nothing nothing gets reconciled that way yeah you know we need uh we need a robust dialogue you know uh, bishop robert Barron, who's the one of the auxiliary bishops in uh the diocese of los angeles talks a lot about that when he talks about ecumenism he talks about robust dialogue then now that only comes from relationship that's right you have to love the people you're talking to mm. and be invested in who they are you know to some ways to say like i'm not going anywhere mm. um we can figure like we can journey together on this mm. and um reconciliation actually requires a lot of conflict i mean it's good conflict yeah but like you say it requires the safety of a relationship but reconciliation in a way is like it's kind of mostly conflict like if, because if you can't own the particularity of your own, like like of where you are, then then 
any attempt towards reconciliation is ultimately false if people feel like they it's, have to contort or yeah i mean that's one of the things i that the, the the catholicism that the church teaches about specifically about the sacrament of reconciliation mm. there is there is such a thing as making a bad confession yeah and a lot of it has to do with an examination of conscience and basically admitting this is where i'm at mm-hmm. and um and, and, and to go back to your earlier point about people's perception of the church, of Catholicism being a monolithic organization, I think in some ways that's like one of the criticisms that uh, Pope Francis is getting right now, particularly amongst conservative Catholics, is that um, he's causing all this discord and strife. Mm. And the problem is, is that maybe he's not actually causing it. Maybe he's just exposing it. Like, I, I tend to think that's actually more accurate. I think he's shining a light on it. and um, Which in some ways just feels like to me, not to try to be too spooky about it, but what my sense is of what the Spirit of God is doing more broadly in our time, it's like it's not so much that these divisions or polarities are new so much as that really, really old things are simply being exposed where it's not really any different. It's just more in the light right now. That's what it feels like is that things that have always been are just very much in the light. But I mean, I do feel like it's, it's only in the light that there's the potential for healing, for hope, for restoration is when we have to own these things. I would lo- love on that point, cause that was something I specifically wanted to ask you. I'd love to just hear you riff on Pope Francis, what you feel like what he, what he means to you, what do you feel like he means to the church, what's happening in this moment through his leadership? What's your sense of discernment on that? Well, I think um, it's interesting. One of the things that resulted or, or happened, one of the things that the Spirit of God was doing around the time of the initial Reformation, Reformation was the creation of the Jesuit order. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, there is a, you talk about riffing, there is a weird poetic riffing that it feels like the Spirit of God is doing in the sense that 500 mm. years later, yeah. a Jesuit gets elected Pope. Yeah. The first Jesuit mm-hmm. is elected Pope. Um, and I think that Ignatian spirituality, the spirituality of St. Ignatius of Loyola, particularly when it comes to the, the concept of discernment, um, is really, really important. Like what everything that we're talking about right now. And um, I think he carries with him his the experiences of who he is um you know it's a hard thing for people in the west to understand or comprehend fully um particularly in the, in an english fully english speaking country but the church and the rest of the world is growing a lot faster right right and particularly in latin america sure or in or in, or in spanish-speaking countries um and yet, at the same time, in Spain, uh, you know, Catholicism is struggling. Mm. Um, and then along comes, a, a, I think, a pope who he brings with him his sensibilities. I think some of what we're seeing um, with the tension is the conflict of his leadership style with the established structure of how the Vatican is governed mm-hmm. and there's tension there. Yeah. I don't think it's a bad thing. Sure. Once again, I think um historically right before the Diet of Worms, right before everything sort of imploded with Luther or exploded, depending on how you look at it, um, there was an attempt at a council 
And one of the conversations that was happening was the idea of more uh, regional governance. Mm. You know, to, the the philosophy of of subsidiarity is a very very uh, important principle, I think, in Catholicism. And so the idea that bishops are better suited to um, pastor and to mm. shepherd um, their uh, uh, the the people that are under their spiritual leadership, um, the, the bishops are more able to do that more efficiently than the Pope yeah. or the Curia. Um, it's a very, very Catholic idea. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, it's hard for some people because, um, uh, I think technology has made it possible where all of a sudden now it's a weird, it's a funny thing as a Catholic, you don't have to listen to your own bishop you can actually just go watch another bishop mm. and that you really like yeah. and, and daydream and, and say, I wish, I wish they were my bishop. Right. Which is really funny because it kind of does a weird thing where it's like, well, maybe you're being a weird cafeteria Catholic. Right. <laughs> maybe you're actually doing the thing that drives you nuts about what you say that some people, other people yeah. are doing where yeah. it's like, you're just self-identifying with a conservative bishop sure. and daydreaming, wishing that they were that way. So I've, to go back with the Holy Father, I think some people um, really got accustomed to uh, the leadership style of Pope Benedict, who's, mm. who's a, a brilliant, brilliant genius, yeah. um, a biblical scholar, yeah. a theologian. Like The reality is, is that we don't really need another papal encyclical for... 150 years because the ones that John Paul II and ones that Pope Benedict mm-hmm. wrote were so theologically dense, so sure. wonderful. It's really going to take every other Pope continuing to unpack it. Yeah. I think that's what Pope Francis is, is trying to do. I don't think people understand fully um, the level of um, dysfunction that can exist in old Actually, it's not true. All we need to do is look at the U.S. government. Absolutely, sure, yeah. Like, look at the yeah. fact that we can't pass legislation, that, right. we, like, we can't we can't do anything in this country and say, okay, like, multiply that, like, make the U.S. government, a, you know, a 2,000-year-old institution. Mm, yeah, Or, right. you know, 1,500-year-old institution sure. uh, with this form of governance. And, um, and so, I, you know, I... I I mean, for me, um, I really see the election of Pope Francis as a as a window mm. of opportunity. Some people think that it's a window of opportunity just for a bunch of progressive ideals to be sort of ramrodded down, you know. And I don't think that's I don't think that's what the Holy Spirit's trying to do through his papacy. I think specifically and i and this is i know that he has a heart for reconciliation and i think he is just he is trying to do as much as he can but it's just a really big it's a really it's just a really big work yeah absolutely and um you know it's weird i i, I think I mean, gosh, there, there's probably going to be studies that get published a couple of hundred, hundred years from now that look at the effects of, of postmodern culture mm. on on Christian 
worldviews. Sure. So we don't even understand how the cynicism of our age is affecting our Christian worldview. Like I'm watching people who read the Bible, who pray every day, who go to church several times a week, um, say and do things that are just completely outside the character of Christ. And they, they don't even realize it's like a frog in a boiling pot of water or Mm -hmm. something. And so people are, you know, critical now because they, because they can be sure it's a, it's a, it's some ways it's a weird form of distraction from actually dealing with real problems. Um, yeah, I mean, gosh, I could riff on the Holy father more. I mean, just, just once again, his openness to reconciliation and relationship with mm-hmm. evangelicals. He's one of his closest friends is a pastor named Giovanni Trattino, who's in, mm-hmm. who's in Caserta, Italy. Yeah. The Pope's gone there and, uh, went there for a, a lunch, went there at a, to a service, um, apologized for the way that Pentecostals in, in Italy have been treated, yeah. which is massive. That's because- huge. I mean, I have a dear friend who I love. Like she was actually, she was a nun. She's Brazilian, but she pastors a church in Milan, Italy. And like uh, I know over the years, and keep in mind, this is from somebody who, I mean, my THM at Duke, like most of what I did was in Catholic moral theology, so very much a fan of the tradition, very much drawn. But I know on the ground from people like her, you know, some pretty terrible horror stories in terms of her relationship with the church and the, like the kind of opposition. So like a step like that to a poly- like that's, in terms of building bridges, that's enormous. That's huge. Yeah, it, it's massive, you know. And I, I just, it's, it's just, a, it's a weird thing to me I I I fully subscribe to the magisterium of the church and the deposit of faith that the church teaches. Um but I just and so and because I do, I completely trust and take Jesus at his word when he says the gates of hell will never prevail mm, against yeah. the church. And if that's true, what what kind of narcissist do I have to think I like? Do I have to be as a layperson to think that somehow it's my duty to post a blog or write an article to tell people how much I think the Pope's being a heretic? Like that's the part of me that goes, "This is an illness of this age." Yeah, it's yeah. crazy that lay people have this much free time on their hands mm-hmm. to sit around and criticize clergy not about like massive character defects yeah or stuff like that sure but basically like you're not you're not talking about this in a way that i'm comfortable with yeah. or you're not you're not um you're not using the pres- prescribed set of talking points that i that i expect you to do mm-hmm. you know but this is and this not to try to take the conversation no. in the direction but this no. is part of what's so interesting to me about the moment that we're in is is that i feel like simultaneously and i can make both these cases and kind of do it's like on the one hand it feels like you know jesus prayer in john 17 for the unity of the church which we know has to come to com- has to come to completion i mean like you know the whether we, with or without our consent, the church has always been straining towards that kind of unity. And it feels like 
simultaneously technology now is making that possible in ways that would not have been, that could not have been before. Uh, the the bridges that are being built, the intersections that are being explored. I mean, there there's a real way in which it feels like the Holy Spirit is is using this strange thing of the internet to make that possible. And at the same time that that's possible, it also feels like we're rewiring our brains. We have no idea even biochemically what we're doing to ourselves. No. And it feels like, you know, we're, we're, we're burning the house down at the same time. Like both of those things seem true to me that like, there's like this extraordinary opportunity and these things the Holy Spirit is doing, but precisely because this technology makes different kind of conversation awareness possible. And other ways that, you know, it feels like it's also the very same mechanism that's tearing us apart. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it, you know, it feels definitely feels like a Garden of Eden moment. Yeah, you know where it's like, uh, well, you ate, you ate it, you ate yeah. the fruit, and so here's what's possible now. Yeah, like you, the veil's been lifted, mm-hmm. and you see the difference between, you know, I mean, you know, insert applicable metaphor but you know fundamentally it's your your eyes are open now Mm -hmm. and at the same time now like sin is a real thing and yeah the the byproduct of it the effects of it yeah things are so stuff's starting to break down Mm -hmm. and um and it it does feel like one of those kind of moments where um like I'm starting to realize too that um, that that is is you know John 17, um, which you know to talk about one of the things that's ne- that has never been possible before that's now possible. You know, there's this like this movement that started called John 17, which I'm part of, which is it was started in Phoenix, but it's Catholic bishops and evangelical pastors. Mm-hmm developing relationships, friendships, praying together, a couple of trips, people going to Rome, meeting with the Holy mm-hmm. Father, um, not for the, like, specifically just for the purpose of saying, like, you're my brother. Yeah. You're my sister. Um, can we can we know each other? Mm. And what can God sort of begin to do and unfold in his time. And I think that runs contrary, I think, to the spirit of technology because I do, like, the thing about the tech, the technology thing that's interesting to me is that it, it I feel like it facilitates an introduction. Mm. But at some moment, human, what makes human interaction human is it has to be incarnated. Yeah. Sure. Like, you and I've known each other virtually or online for a while, mm-hmm. but it's like even when you pulled up my driveway and you got to your car, I'm like, we met each other. There's something about that 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 goes, we're meeting for the first time. Yeah, that's right. Sure. You know, and so it's it 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 stuff has it has to get incarnated. That's the only way I know how to say it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, in term and, and distress its importance and. Um, it is one of those things that I just, I, I do, I struggle with the nature of it right now, particularly with words and the way that words get kind of mm. thrown around mm-hmm. um, on, the, on the, the, you know, the internet and everything that you're saying about the effects, 
you know, I've thought about that with my kids so much. I mean, it's like, it's, you know, and I'm surprised nobody has done like a, like an extensive documentary yet on the development of the, and it's probably because it's so new and the data is just starting to come out now that talks about like, I was reading this one study that said cell phones basically, um, kids it's impairing kids short-term memory yeah i've read that too sure and um and then it it impairs their ability to to develop empathy Mm -hmm. and i'm like okay so memory and empathy and i'm like where would my faith be without Mm. memory and empathy wow yeah like Mm. half the psalms Mm. are written like in the moment recollecting yeah or like or you know yeah i mean if today you hear god's voice hearken harden not your hearts as in the day of meribah mm-hmm. uh when they were in the desert and they tested me mm. it's like what happens if you don't have memory like if you don't you know i would say memories are things that help you uh those are the moments that help you make declarations about who god is Mm. because you've experienced it Mm. and it's like and if you don't you don't have that memories then you you know and if you don't have the memories of god's faithfulness in your own life how can you have empathy towards other people Mm. it's so interesting too because then there's such wisdom in living in the moment and there's something to that and yet at the same time it's like if if the technology gestures towards like being so present to the moment that there's no sense of history there's no sense of tradition there's no no, there's no broader story right man like it like and you're almost trapped inside the moment that you're in because you can't if, if there's no no capacity to kind of feel or experience or connect with any reality outside the one that i can feel like in this moment like that's 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 a scary place to be. Yeah, it's like Groundhog Day. Right. It's but it's like a re like just like this. It's the uh, it's the same track of dysfunction mm. and disunity and fragmentation. Yeah. I think it, what's interesting too is that when you talk about it in light of the concept of and this is one of the things I've I've just been thinking about more and more is is sort of do we have the courage to ask the question? You know, Jesus says in John 17, pray that they may be one and you and I are one so that the world may believe is literally the Great Commission. um, Does it hinge upon the fulfillment of that prayer? Mm -hmm. Meaning like it's impossible to preach the gospel to the whole world when when we're not together. Yeah. And I'm I'm not saying like together in a state of like full theological communion. Just are like, do we know each other, and do we do we see one another, and are we incur- like are we able to stand and hold the tension of our of our differences, and yet still encourage one another? Yeah, you know, and some people can, and some people can't. That's right. It's it's okay. You know, like I I understand yeah. that. Well, I mean, even getting to a baseline, but uh, I mean. I know this is controversial stuff for almost anybody, but it's like I kind of, I mean, I live, it's again, living in all these weird intersections. Like, on the one hand, I think that I understand. I mean, I guess, loosely speaking, um, 
coming from the Protestant side, <laughs> even if it's not like the Protestant mainline, like whatever. I, I, I certainly understand. I think there were real reasons that the Reformation was kind of necessary in its time, but it's like, you know, on the Protestant side, you, you celebrate Reformation Sunday. And I really do think, even if it was sort of necessary for its time, or there was ways, of course, God's always bring beauty out of brokenness, like in any direction. But at the end of the day, I really, if you believe, as I have come to believe, like that schism is fundamentally sin, and that schism is probably worse, always going to be worse in the body of Christ than anything the other guy's doing. Like whatever makes me say I need to separate myself from my brother and sister, probably really a lot worse than anything they're doing on the right or left side of whatever the issue is. Yeah. Like, but I mean, because you just look at the fruit of that and like we're at a place where now there are literally, there are 45,000 Christian denominations because then it becomes trying to tweak over and over again till you get to the right belief and you just keep separating, keep separating. Well, we have a slightly different view on sanctification. So we're going to start a church down the road you know, it, the, the moment it, it, that to me is part of what's so beautiful about Catholic spirituality is that it's so centered on the Eucharist, and there's a, there, like there, there are practices that hold the people together. Whereas once you get into like we know who we are based on our beliefs in like a cerebral way, well, good grief! I mean, that goes on forever. The project of trying to find yeah. the perfect belief system. Well, that it was interesting because I think it's is it James K. A. Smith, is it James Smith? It was at a there was a conference a worship conference with the Gettys and I love Keith and Kristen Getty they're yeah. amazing, but one of the, there's this like someone tweeted a quote from him that said he said you are what you think, hmm. and I was like my goodness I hope not yeah, I hope I'm not what I think yeah, um, it and once again it's it um, I think it. I mean, you're absolutely right in the sense that if there is anything that holds Catholicism together, it's the centrality of the Eucharist mm. and of the liturgy. Mm. It everything. I mean, they call it the source and summit of the Christian life, and it's, it's it's it everything flows from it, and everything flows back to it. Yeah, and that's the rhythm of life that you know, Catholics believe God calls us into um, is around that, the Paschal mystery, the, the the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You know, I mean, we're, we're recording this in Holy Week. You know, it's like it's, we're, we're, you know, uh, 40 minutes away from Holy Thursday starting. And um, once again, entering back into that you know the triduum and the, the 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 you know journeying on the footsteps with jesus you know to to calvary but then also from calvary to the tomb and then out of the tomb you know and and um and the idea that every sunday is a mini easter yeah um is amazing it is amazing and Truly. um you know, and it, it honestly, it's the, you know, I heard someone once say the Eucharist is, uh, you will not find another place of solidarity of great. You will not find another greater place of solidarity with the poor mm. of, um, um, preference for the marginalized, mm. 
and um, sort of equality of people more than at the Eucharist because mm. it's we're we're all we all fall short. Yeah, we're all sinners. You know, I and I. You know, they they changed the translation of the Roman Missal a couple of years ago, and and the the phrase used to say, bef- um, at the end of the Lamb of God was uh, in, in response to the presider was Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. And they mm-hmm. changed it to Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof, mm. but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. And I, I just it it's hearing the corporate humility of. Yeah. Everybody's got to say that. Yes, and yes. I, it's it's what you're saying. There, there's like there's a practice, and it's it you know it's a you know liturgy means work of the people, but it's you know the sacred liturgy is the work of Jesus um, that he invites the church to participate in. so interesting with the way you describe that too, Matt, because I think a lot about how as much as I think it's good that we have access to different traditions, and it's wonderful, like, I think we should learn from all Christian traditions, and I think everybody brings something to the table that we need, all those kind of things. But it's also there's also a sense of, like, who doesn't want to kind of cherry-pick the best of Christian tradition? If you identify with any particular Christian tradition, that means you have to identify with its flaws, not just its strengths, which means... You always have to start from a posture of confession and humility. I, I, I embody the best of Catholicism, the best of Eastern Orthodoxy, the best of... I mean, who doesn't want that, right? <laughs> but if you identify with a particular tradition, then you have then as a starting point, you always have to start with a confession. And that's where, to me, identifying with any particular tradition is so important, is that you have to own its sins, not just its... So, cause, and, I, and I say that it's kind of like a correction myself, because like I kind of... You know, I have that. A lot of people in more evangelical contexts do that. That desire to kind of want to cherry pick or whatever. Like, hey, great to draw from all the traditions, but there is some value. Not that you know God's only working in one in particular, but just owning a particular family and all the good, bad, and ugly. Say, these are my people. This is my tribe. This is my story. One of my favorite moments in recent years, uh, as a great example, of this was um, so my favorite conference uh, on leadership and on church life uh, I, I just think if you're in public ministry at all it's a great conference to go to is the leadership conference that's hosted by uh, Holy Trinity Brompton in London mm. and um, it's what's so great about it is that they always have someone from I feel like all three streams represented mm. so obviously they're the Church of England um, then they usually have a Catholic um, usually a clergy member of some kind and then they usually have someone from the more charismatic or Pentecostal side of the church. Mm. And it's just so interesting where you have mainline evangelical or mainline Protestant in the Church of England, Catholic, and the, the Pentecostal side, and everybody's sort of given equal equal treatment. Mm. Everyone's respected. Everyone's, um, it's this appreciation of everyone's gift, but everybody owns who they are. And uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury um, was basically talking about how he invited a uh, monastic community called Shemaynev 
to come back to Lambeth Palace and pray the Liturgy of the Hours there. Mm. So Justin Welby, who's the Archbishop of Canterbury, invited a Catholic monastic community to come and um, pray the Liturgy of the Hours, and they have daily Mass. Mm. And he goes, and he doesn't receive communion. Wow. And um, because he says, he says, I... I want to feel the sting of disunity mm. so that I would be more compelled to work for unity. Mm. And so that's, I mean, I, I know for me in my own life, um, you know, I, I go to two, I always joke about it on the road and say I go to two churches because my wife and I are overachievers. But, <laughs> you know, we go to a parish, St. Joseph's, uh, about a mile from here in, in Madison, and then we're also involved with Church of the City, their East Nashville campus. And I, you know, whenever I'm home, we go to Saturday evening vigil mass, and then we go to Sunday morning church service at Church of the City. And wow. I'm always the only guy in the room, because they have communion every Sunday, wow. and I'm always the only guy in the room, you know, not receiving. Hmm. And I want to feel that, because I, mm-hmm. I, to me, it does, it goes, it, you know, the, you know, the Benedictine order, the first rule of Benedict is you greet everyone as Christ. Mm-hmm. I want to feel the tension of what that feels like to not be receiving and to empathize with those who, you know, might say it's inhospitable. It's, you know, it's this and this, it's that and that. I, it, how could you, how, you know, because, and yet at the same time, because I'm, because that's the thing, because I'm a Catholic. So I have to own the fact that like, if I, I mean, goodness, I was at this event in Michigan couple of years ago and Amy Grant was playing at it and we went we were invited to to mass at the where the nuns um live Mm. and um and Amy didn't receive communion and but nobody had kind of like prepped her on it and I remember talking to her about it after and I was like you know, how does that feel for you? Because it's yeah. like, I think that's the thing that I think that sometimes Catholics don't do enough of is, once again, um, what's that experience like for someone? Yeah. yeah. And can you, do you have the courage to just step into their world a little bit and empathize? Mm. And 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 if you do, may may God burden you more. You know what I mean with yeah. with with the burden to help bring about unity mm. in your own little sphere and mm. in your own little world, you know, and that and that's really what because that's what it needs. You know, it's like we we just need more people caring about this, yeah, yeah, to help push the ball forward. It's so fascinating, Matt, because like on the one hand, I mean. I want the table to be open and certainly want unity at the table yeah. and all that. But it's you know, even the, as you tell those stories, it's like the kind of reverence for the meal in Catholic tradition. I remember, I mean, obviously, I mean, of course, he's instrumental for everybody, but I remember so many years ago reading Merton for the first time, and it just took my breath away that initially, like, the catalyst for him, like, I want to live in the same place where the elements are. Like I want to be under the same roof, like that level of reverence. It's, it's, it's funny for me because as somebody who has, and you know, I, and no, who loves labels, right? But I know that 
by a lot of people's definitions, I would be so much more progressive, open, inclusive now than kind of from where I come from. But it's like there's this sense, and I, I feel like this gets left out of so many conversations. I truly do believe that it truly is only at the, it, that it's at the Lord's table that unity is possible. So it's like mm. you can have these great ideas about justice and mercy and equality or whatever. But no matter how good those ideals are, like I truly do believe that it's only at Christ's table that real unity is possible. So like as much as it might sound for some people like, I don't know, like exclusionary, exclusionary divisive or whatever, I do think there's something about like having a real sense of weight about that table because it, it's only at the table that kind of real unity is possible. I feel like we see this all the time. At the end of the day, like people want a certain kind of like social change or progress or whatever. The bottom line is I think like without the in Christ part, there's not a depth and a robustness of spirituality enough that makes it, that would make those changes possible. Make people, it even possible. Yeah. People like kind of just kind of flame out. That's part of, for me, what I admire so much about the tradition and why I feel like to this minute, Catholics are more effective than a lot of other folks in terms in the long game, in terms of like social transformation, because there's, there's a depth of spirituality that's made possible by that rudeness in the table that I feel like a lot of us kind of on my side of the, pond just just lack well it's interesting because it's one of the first things that the when you look at the history of what the of what the um, reformers did one of the first things they did was sort of discredit the efficacy of the eucharist yeah and the priest um and and they they exacerbated uh i mean i mean and granted i understand this how some people read it some people have a different interpretation but um uh, I, I was listening to a talk by uh, Father Nero Contalomesa, who's a Vatican household preacher, and he talked about how, you know, um, you know, Luther, in an effort to um, illustrate the beauty of grace, uh, exacerbated the the plight of the human condition. Right. And Calvin just ran with it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I and, believe that. Yeah. And. Um, and 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 I think that one of the other things that they did was they basically they said it's just you don't you don't need that thing, mm. and it's so interesting because it is like one of the things that so many of my worship leader friends who come from you know particularly the ones who come from Pentecostal backgrounds we did so there's a spiritual practice um, particularly amongst younger Catholics now called adoration of mm. the Blessed Sacrament mm -hmm. where. You know, Catholics believe once it's prayed over during a mass, the Holy Spirit's changed it, and it is, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's now Jesus. Mm -hmm. So they, uh, some people credit it to Saint Francis. You know, some people just say it's just sort of organically developed that this idea of just sitting or kneeling in the presence of the consecrated host, that it was this deep time of communion mm -hmm. with the lord and i love this one of my favorite stories was um and and so they developed the whole concept of tabernacle so you go into catholic church and there's a tabernacle behind the altar because it's based on the tabernacle from the holy of holies mm. where the bread the manna that came from heaven was housed yeah and so saint john vianney who is uh they called him the cure of ours he was in a town of town of france called ours france he came in his church, and every time he'd come in his church, 
there was always this man sitting there. And finally he went up to the man and he said, what is it you do here? And the man pointed at the tabernacle and he said, I look at him and he looks at me. Mm. Um, and uh, so I was at this event at World Youth Day in Sydney with like 75,000 people mm. and Hillsong, some of the guys from Hillsong were there and we had this moment of adoration after. And I remember talking to Joel Houston after and he was like, I've never said the sense of reverence was just nothing I've ever seen before. You know, there's this video of me singing Lord, I need you with the Pope and Rio and everyone, it's like dead quiet and people are like, what are you doing? I'm like, that's what they're all doing. Mm-hmm. There's 3 million people kneeling in front of the Eucharist, mm-hmm. not worshiping an object. They're right. worshiping God. Right. It's, it's because they, because they think that somehow the presence of God is there in, in like, substantively why else would you get on your knees on a beach unless you didn't actually believe it really was somehow jesus otherwise it would be idolatry Mm -hmm. sure you you know what i mean um in a in a in a biblical sense um so i mean that and that you know uh having had that said having robots disagreements about you know is it Jesus or is it a symbol? Mm-hmm. Uh, how does it change? Is it always changed? Is do we not really know how it's changed, but mm-hmm. we believe it's changed? You know that all the sort of denominational arguments that we have when it comes to Eucharist, those are great. But don't accuse someone of worshiping and of idolizing something when it's when they're professing that it's Jesus. That's right. That's right. I think that's the part that that's, that was interesting to me. But but anyways, all that being said, the sense of reverence that comes from that yeah. and it's because once again, it's because they, you know, the Catholics that do believe in the real presence in the mm-hmm. Eucharist, they really believe it. Yeah. And yeah. uh and it to me, you know, to my point before, it's like and not to beat a dead horse, or yeah, yeah, but yeah. so like as a person who cares a lot about justice and peacemaking and all kinds of people included and, you know, all the things, that to me feels like the fundamental misdiagnosis of a lot of like progressive cultures. I feel like at the end of the day, I feel like there's such a hunger in people natively for otherness, yes. for reverence. Yes. I was at a, I was at a, a, a big Christian event several years ago. And actually there were so many things about it. I thought were wonderful. And it definitely no like sense of judgment or something, but it, it did kind of grieve me because I felt like by the end, very progressive event. And they were so careful then and trying to do communion at the end to like, there was nothing particular about it. They referred to it as like the freedom mill. There was literally not a single reference to like the body and blood. of. I'm not talking about substitutionary penal atonement. Or yeah, something. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, there yeah, was yeah. no reference to the body or blood of Jesus. And there was reference to a cross. And it was the idea of like, let's strip everything particular and distinctive out of this experience to like almost make it as generic as possible. And I just, so, I, I, man, I just really do believe that any and all kind, people are craving mystical real firsthand experience of the presence of god something that something that's other like people want that all kinds of people want that and i just i don't know i just feel like that's something that a lot of us who want to build bridges can kind of you know i think too glibly skip over is that there's something there's something real and something important about that just that desire for a reverent otherworldly kind of encounter with with god yeah i know you're i mean you're absolutely right you know i think one of the things that sometimes people overlook uh 
about it too is where it happens mm. when it happens in the mass mm. so it happens after the confidier or the curier or the lord have mercy once again god we're all sinners it happens after the word is proclaimed because then the word can be made flesh um it happens after the creed and that's probably the most important element in the sense of like mm. the creed which the creeds were written because they were written at a time when somehow the church needed to respond to a cultural moment yeah or a or a subculture now maybe a subcultural moment is a better definition of mm. like you know hey we need to figure out how to confront gnosticism right or pelagianism or whatever it is we we need to somehow uh reconcile this mm -hmm. with who we are we need it to be dealt with and so the creeds develop and um and so that's why the creed is placed where it is because it's like it's all we believe mm. or uh or and that's or i believe yeah you know and it's the nicene or the apostles creed and um it's that public confession mm -hmm. that after this moment of asking god for mercy um that the church would say those are actually the two those are two very important conditions that have to be met mm -hmm. and typically nine times out of ten those two conditions are usually only met with somebody who's in a state of practicing full communion mm. with this assembled group of people mm. called the roman rite of the catholic church you know because that's the other thing too there's all these other rites yeah. in the church there's you know the maronite rite sure. and the um uh uh, and now the Anglican or Anglican ordinary, yeah. right? Um, the Eastern Catholic, mm -hmm. um, right? And it professing that creed um, is a it's a it's an important thing, you know. And it, um, and that's the thing. Like if and I think about it, it's like if I was at a Presbyterian church. And they took time to profess a creed of some kind that sort of said what all the things that they um, subscribe to together. Then I would probably go, "Oh wait, I, I'm not sure about that one." Hmm. And not out of disrespect or not out of um, hatred, but just out hmm. of a sense of acknowledging we're not we're not all together on these. Um, so therefore I probably, I won't participate. Maybe I shouldn't participate in this. Um, but that, the other thing is, is that takes a certain level of foreknowledge and understanding. And once again, like, and I think one of the hard things about when you're talking about the concept of Eucharist, um, it's predicated upon actually even having an understanding of who, what Jesus did. Yeah, that's right. And like, mm -hmm. if you're somebody who doesn't believe, like Jesus to you has been an action figure at Urban Outfitters right. that you saw like in high school <laughs> yeah. on the weekends. Um, you have no concept of any of this stuff. 
and you end up at a church because you don't know where else to turn and you have a million and one questions about your identity, your purpose, you know, all this, and you end up at, uh, like, I always joke and say mass, Catholic mass is not a form of out. It's, it's, it's the worst form of outreach. It's the best and worst form of outreach all at the same time. It's the best because it's non, it's so non-confrontational yeah. and it is beautiful. Yeah. Very beautiful. It usually takes place in a, in a architectural, architecturally gorgeous building. Um, you know, it, there's a sense of anonymity yeah. that's real non-confrontational, which is nice. Um, which some people like. Some people, some people want to walk into a church and have someone greet them and tell them where the Starbucks coffee is and where the childcare is. <laughs> Other people want to sneak in the back yeah. and just kind of sit down because they're not fully convinced that lightning isn't going to strike them. Yeah, you know what I mean. Sure. Um, but all that being said, then what they end up experiencing if they if they don't if there's no understanding of what they're about to see or witness mm -hmm. all the standing up sitting down the hand signals and the, and you know the guys wearing dresses like it's just sort of like what's like what's going on i i don't i don't understand any of this you know um so it's an interesting time where a lot of churches have abandoned a sense of liturgy in favor of a very informal liturgy because i was i think I would say Christianity is inherently liturgical. Oh, absolutely. Left alone yeah. in a vacuum, sure. we will develop we'll develop a liturgy out of what mm -hmm. we do. Mm -hmm. um, and that stuff right now, the most popularized forms, are super informal. Sure. Which is not a criticism. It's just it's just an honest assessment. Yeah. And um, so it does, you know, it does present a dilemma to folks like yourself in the sense of like, who are sort of contending for, I think as part of your, the tradition that you come from and even the one that you're sort of newly embracing in the Episcopal tradition of saying like, Hey guys, no, this stuff's really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. It's important. And mm -hmm. you, you know, maybe, you know, I appreciate the thing I appreciate about Anglicanism is the sense of flexibility. Yeah. I don't subscribe to it, but I understand why, um, you know, one of the things I find myself a little bit envious of, uh, not on a theological level, but on an ecclesial level, about when I've been to England and I've been around the mm -hmm. folks from HTB, Holy Trinity Brompton, is that, um, so many of their young worship leaders are all vicars now. Oh, wow. Interesting. So there's this path mm. where these guys who started out helping out with a youth group and then got involved with Alpha mm -hmm. um, are now s sort of making a fuller commitment. And I guess mm. this, I guess the only comparable thing would maybe be the diaconate in the Catholic, yeah, in, the, sure. in the Catholic Church. Yeah, it would, it, would, it would probably be the diaconate. I don't know what I'm saying. 
I don't, I don't think I'm saying I'm ready. <laughs> no, I think that's I'm, right. That's true. Yeah, it yeah. is. I'm not, but I, I'm not, I'm not ready to be a deacon. I'm not, <laughs> my wife doesn't want to be a deacon's wife. So <laughs> I'm still fascinated that you guys go to two church. Like that is, that is overachieving right there. Like that's like, well, the mission statement of our marriage, you know, we went through this Catholic, uh, marriage prep called Unitas and we had the, they make you like the couple that we walked through with this for six months. They made us draft a mission statement. Wow. And, um, and we sort of drafted it out of John 17. That's great. Yeah. A John 17. I could catch on. I could see that though. Yeah. A John building a John 17 marriage. That's great. <laughs> yeah. That's oh yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, there's going to be a whole resource. <laughs> I can see it now. Life ways that there are, there are, it's already printing. Our mission is to embody the ultimate eschatological unity of the church <laughs> within our union. Like that's ambitious. That is an ambitious marriage that, right there. That, that's, a, that's amazing. <laughs> but like, first of all, this has been, this would be the greatest night. I mean, there's no way I could duplicate for everybody. I mean, like, it's storming outside and it's close yeah, yeah. to midnight. And like, yeah. I feel terrible to keep you up half the night. So, and I mean, I could, I mean, I could do this for days. Also, one thing I definitely want to ask you about in particular, just because even talking about, I mean, I feel like a few things we've gestured around, like just the uniqueness of the moment we're in, and all that. I had to ask you, but just because I saw that you posted about it, as I did. So curious as to, I mean, recording this the week, not only Holy Week, but um, culture, just where we are, the march on Saturday. And mm. like I saw that you post, like, I, I would love to just get your your thoughts on that as as a as a Christian, how you feel about well, the I whole think, conversation. Yeah, around. I mean, I think first and foremost, just as a parent, I um, I, I have three kids mm. and I just, you know, there's a million and one reasons why kids are more depressed than they've ever been and more anxious than they've ever been. Um, and there's a, a lot of those reasons have nothing to do with gun control or gun violence or anything mm -hmm. like that. However, that being said, in the day and age in which we live and the fact that events like this keep happening, yeah. um, I think it's interesting for me because I see this, um, and I, I, some of it is growing up as a Canadian, because I, I just we just didn't the police didn't even have guns where mm -hmm. we lived. It was and and granted, crime's gotten worse. You know, the oil industry developed in Newfoundland, and crime always follows. Oil. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah, because usually drug use mm -hmm. is what follows the oil industry, particularly mm -hmm. cocaine. Well, and. Um, yeah, so it's like I remember growing up in a town that you didn't have to lock your doors at night, and now um, there's actual crime that's happening. Mm -hmm. and it's very interesting. Um, I think that, um, and I, I didn't, I didn't get to draw any conclusions. I was, I was frantically up late to Saturday night and Sunday night, trying to look for a correlation between older generations' criticism of people in the Jesus movement hmm. of their sort of radical faith and following Christ um, man I think we're blowing a moment yeah. I mean honestly yeah. I think the church I think it, I mean 
I think evangelical Christianity, and actually, no, it's not true because it's not all evangelicals. It actually the the vast majority of Christians, non like non denominational Christians that I meet, I would not put in this category mm. because we're not. You can't. Christianity in America is not a monolithic. That's true. Belief system. Yeah. It's all over the place. That's right. Um. Uh, there are lots of people in America who are avid, and I've, I'm friends with them, who are avid supporters of the Second Amendment, um, however, are also in favor of sensible, right. of sensible reform. Sure, yeah. Um, of technological innovation. Of I mean, we live in the most industrious nation ever in the history of humanity. Mm -hmm. We can find ways to make... Um, the purchase and sale of fire, firearms. You know, I've, I've, there's just, there's so many inconsistencies. The fact that a bunch of high school protesters showed up to a protest in Dallas and they weren't allowed to bring the posters they had because the posters were on giant meter sticks and those meter sticks could be potential weapons to inflict harm. Wow. And well, so, amazing. okay, let's think about that Jeez. for a second. So these kids are trying to lobby now or rally the consciousness of america towards a sensible solution for gun reform and the sticks they're using mm. can be potentially dangerous weapons but if they were if they were carrying guns that's that's oh that's okay and if they shoot somebody then that's not a gun problem it's a sin problem like that, which is which is quintessentially the argument I think that that people are basically making is that the problem at hand here is not, and it's just sure. it it look. That's like saying um, pornography is not a plague upon Western civilization because lust is part of the human condition. Mm -hmm. So it's not a pornography problem; it's a lust problem. Mm -hmm. It that's a great analogy. No, I mean Alain Bubel, who's a uh, who's an atheist, but he's a big proponent of taking sort of the moral fabric that Christianity has largely mm -hmm. uh, supplied civilization for the past, you know, several hundred years, primarily. Um, he he compared sort of man's current uh, ability to ward off like um, the temptation. Of pornography he talked about basically man was genetically capable of maybe handling looking at an attractive woman a mm. single attractive woman and not acting upon it mm. like that's within man's genetic predispositional capability right and then all of a sudden you take the dopamine inducing mm. um you know effects of the internet and introduce all that so like to me it's it's yeah. it's just it's it's a straw argument it's, it's just no like then it and actually if it's a sin problem then you as a christian should actually work that much harder yeah. to rid society of it yeah. why do you think prohibition happened right why do you you know what i mean like why do you think now it's illegal to smoke in a restaurant yeah because we know it hurts you yeah it kills you and and like i mean it's crazy i'm i mean i'm a gun owner i'm a i i'm a bachelor i lived in arizona you know but I, when i went and got 
my carry license, the class was a joke. Mm. It was literally a joke. It was a three-hour class. All the guy did was talk about the castle doctrine and how you should defend yourself specifically only in certain cases so you don't get prosecuted for mm. discharging a firearm. Wow. And, and like, and I go like, it's ridiculous. And I would gladly submit myself to further, further scrutiny, further training, um, because it would only make you a more responsible member and, and a better member of society. Yeah, that's right. It would only make you more trustworthy. Mm -hmm. It would only, and not only that, but you would actually, um, you would be being, you would, you'd, you'd be being a good ambassador for the gospel. Yeah in the sense that you'd be willing to work with authority. So this this whole argument, it's crazy in the sense that I feel caught in the middle as a Christian in the sense that I look at how, um, like, I look how rabid some people are about uh, women's reproductive rights mm -hmm. and how crazy set they are on it. And that's sort of the measure in their mind, that's the measure of a free and open society. Mm -hmm. And then I look at people on the other side whose measure of a free and open society is the ability to carry a firearm. Yeah, And it's crazy because both of those things right now are resulting in a loss of what I personally, obviously, I believe is a loss of human life. Mm. And neither side is willing to give up. Yeah. And it's it's an interesting... It's very, very saddening. Mm. That all being said, I think what, I, what I'm witnessing with these young people with the March for Our Lives movement, I mean, here's the crazy thing. There is a pro-life movement that's literally for, it's pro-life. Mm -hmm. So that's, and if you're Catholic, to be pro-life is a seamless garment. Yeah that upholds the dignity of every human life mm -hmm. from conception mm -hmm. all the way to death, mm -hmm. right? Which includes high school teenagers at, yeah. at Parkland yeah, massively. And what saddened me the most, what bummed me out the most was that I don't think anybody from the March for Life was majorly out supporting these young people. That's interesting probably mostly because of who was politically supporting them. Mm. And that's what broke my heart in the sense where, um, you know, it worries me about the future of the pro-life movement in this country mm. in the sense that it really is becoming not just, it's not even about it as being a single issue. It's about a, um, now it's about just specifically being aligned with mm. a singular political party. Mm. And that to me is just extremely dangerous because um, you're, you're limiting, to me you're limiting, essentially you're limiting the power of the gospel. You're, you're yeah. limiting the power of the gospel to change minds, to change hearts. Yeah, And I think you're not, I, and, and I humbly think you're not, um, like in this instance with the March for Our Lives movement, you're leaving those kids hanging. You're hanging those kids out to dry. Yeah. Like the March for Life movement should have been at that march. Mm. Should have been there mm. and said, you know what? We there's there's people here we don't see ideologically with them on some things, 
but this issue is too important. Mm -hmm. You know, our young people are too important. And, um, and we're stuck and everybody knows we're stuck. Yeah. And sort of along comes this movement and I, you just get the sense of like, Oh, there's a sense of momentum here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, some people didn't like it that I would use this term about it, but I just couldn't help watching that footage come in and that there's something about it for me that truly felt prophetic in the sense of especially, I mean, I just kept thinking about Joel's prophecy, which Peter uses on the day of Pentecost. This is that spoken of by the prophet Joel in the last days I'll pour my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Like there's something so uniquely powerful about younger people finding their voice and but yet it also like i found i really do find the whole thing to be kind of frightening too because there's a sense of like okay one thing to not listen to politicians pundits preachers priests but like if we if we can't listen to our own sons and daughters and if they cross our kind of team sport partisan politics we're willing to demonize them we're willing to come after them we're willing to like to discredit 15 year olds who just survived a serious trauma that to me feels like serious darkness and just it's yeah. such a commentary. And the same we talked about even so much earlier about so many things that feel like are just being illuminated right now. What a, it, you talk about look at having to take a long, hard look in the mirror. I mean, that's, that's frightening to me. It's massively, it's massively frightening. Um, but it, it, unfortunately history, you know, we, we're not good learners. Mm. from history and um you know i remember someone's someone once criticizing the 60s and saying oh well they had it they had all the right idea but then sex drugs and rock and roll took over and i'm like you know part of the thing that happened there in the 60s was that there was a massive sense of cultural upheaval because 15 years earlier we just finished a global conflict and there was never culturally any sense of grieving yeah. the massive loss of life that was inflicted by one of the great evils of human history that being you know the 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 the, the third reich um and then also the but just the amount of americans that got killed but had to kill people yeah like it's not natural right and so like all those people come back from that conflict and then they go off and fight in korea and then they come back from that and it's like they've just Amer like an agrarian mostly an agrarian society full of farmers and stuff basically went off and killed people and then came back and we gave them the suburbs and industry yeah and and their children, like all of that got handed down to them in some ways, you know, and it 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 come it came out in this way. And I think what's interesting for me is that I feel like now what's happened is we haven't learned. So right. there there's this cultural moment, you know, they're they're talking about this the next generation that's coming up. They're they're the most unbiblical generation ever, the moment, blah, blah, blah. And all we're doing right now is just throwing out statistics instead yeah. of actually engaging yeah. with these people. Yeah. Instead of like coming alongside 
And, and so I think it's because we're distancing ourselves, probably like what you said, because we can't get over our political allegiances yeah. now. Yeah. Um, Politics is the new religion. It is. It really is. And that's part of why I, man, I can be, I can harp on this stuff. I know Drabby was great. It was like, I just really do believe nationalism, like any form of nationalism, it makes religious claims. When you, when you get that much into that deeply into like people's center of meaning and all that, it's just, it's fundamentally religious in nature. Like you just can't, I just, that's where I feel, I feel like the, the the demand for Christians to pledge allegiance to the kingdom of God has to so radically transcend that of any particular nation state. And the moment those kind of things, that's, I feel like we see so much of right now is like when those things, even if the idea is to hold them somehow equally, I mean, it's just, you know, it seems so disastrous to me. Well, it, the problem is, is that America was essentially, it was founded as an experiment. Yeah. And, but it was based on principles, but it was based on certain ideals that required people to be of sound character, mm-hmm. sound mind, and um, uh, basically pursuing virtuous lives. Mm-hmm. And the problem is this now is that so many of the same people that keep saying that though, that, that is important keep getting exposed as yeah. being terrible followers of it. Yeah, And that... And that's the hard part is that if you're, if you really believe in the ideal of America, not quote unquote as a Christian nation, but as a nation founded upon Judeo-Christian principles mm-hmm. or concepts of freedom, equality, justice that stem out of this sort of the, the Protestant imagination, yeah. um, that's great. But that means you're called to like a way higher standard. Right. Yeah. And the problem is, is right now is that it, that standard has a massive credibility flaw yeah. currently. Yeah. Because, you know, at some point the market or money became an easier pursuit yeah. than sanctity. Yeah. And it, um, you know, we're now we're sort of in living in the, the wake of it all, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's sad. And at the same time, um, I don't know. Like, I almost wonder, like, I remember hearing the story of how, like, in, in Numbers, when the Israelites got to the Promised Land, they sent in the spies, and the spies come back, and they're like, this place is ridiculous, but we can't go in there because there's all these, like, other tribes and Joshua and Caleb were like, we should totally, you know, overtake the land and, and God's gonna basically wipe them all out. And Moses appeals on the glory of God and says, you can't wipe us out. You'll make yourself look really, really bad if you do that. Mm -hmm. And God says, fine, but I'm going to wait until this whole generation dies Mm. before you go in. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I wonder if that's the case in the sense of like the the plight of where the church is right now yeah. in the sense of there is this generation of leadership, not all of it. It's just it's there are some voices that have just specifically chosen to align themselves yeah. uh, in such a way that 
they it's like they don't care about the credibility of future generations yeah. or they don't care about you know um and or in some ways that yeah they're they're it's like they've put all their eggs in one basket mm -hmm. and i and that's the part that i just don't i don't know i don't like the death of billy graham for me was really really a sad moment because mm -hmm. i feel like well and and honestly was my prayer was that uh, i thought of the scripture so john I think it, I don't know if it's chapter 19, but unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and mm -hmm. dies, it cannot bear fruit. Yeah. And I was like, Lord, let his death be a grain of wheat. Mm. In the sense of like, here's a guy who um, lived a life without scandal, mm -hmm. um, believed fully in the gospel. He wasn't perfect by any stretch, True. but um, he would not give political allegiance. Mm-hmm to one party right or one system yeah i feel like he navigated that tension well of what you're talking about especially post nixon i mean which he repented of that you know like we're, that we're right allegiance exactly you know and basically said i never should have done it mm -hmm. you know and, and it's weird because someone someone a friend of mine texted me and said how can his kids have such radically different views and i was like well maybe they just thought he was wrong yeah I was like, maybe they're PKs. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I do know that we need more Billy Grahams. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. That's so true. You know, uh, in that sense, or or we need, or maybe we don't need more Billy Grahams. We need whatever it is that God's doing that's new. Yeah, whatever it is. You know what I mean? For yeah. such a time as this. Yeah, whatever that that iteration is. But it's it's happening. Yeah, you know it's. This can sound like too dire, and I don't mean I don't mean it to be quite so apocalyptic. But <laughs> the thing about like, you know, a generation having to die off or whatever, I just keep thinking about like my understanding of what Jesus talks about, famously, and talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. It's like, well, you know, there's no other path to salvation but the Holy Spirit. So if you deny the witness of the Spirit, what's the path? It just I get very nervous when people decide this is how we're going to see and it doesn't matter what happens doesn't matter what the holy spirit's doing it doesn't matter what anybody else around us says like like when you make a decision that you're just not going to see certain things that to me that's just such a dangerous place it's one thing to like to not see something because you know, you just can't see. It's another thing to like to to to, to decide. <laughs> There's just some things that we're not willing to look at. There's some things we're not willing to consider, no matter what the implications. And that's kind of what these political allegiances feel like to me right now. Like they, they were they, like they become so determinative that it's kind of like nothing can challenge my worldview. Nothing, whatever. And like when you're that invulnerable like to where nothing can get at you, including the spirit of God, when there's no openness. I mean, to be vulnerable is to be open to change. And like, I just, gosh, to me, it's you think that phrase of the Old Testament being stiff necked, like that, that, that is so scary to me, the idea of getting to a place to where like, and that's, and that, and coming full circle, even some of the stuff about like uh, the Marth and Saturday, that to me is some of what I, my fear right now is, is there's that kind of stiff neckness where we can put ourselves in a posture where like, okay, there is nothing that could happen to us that would be redemptive except destruction <laughs> well, once you get to that place. Yeah, it's just sort of this idea that the only thing that, like, you know, and you hear this from certain certain uh, 
Christian leaders or whatever, that the only thing that will turn America around now is America. Well, we're just going to have to be brought to our knees. It's mm. going to have to be some big catastrophe. And, and, and once again, I'm like, you, you guys, the, the, our political system is completely dysfunctional. Yeah. Um, people are addicted to technology. Mm-hmm. Um, they're scared out of their minds. Mm-hmm. They're, um, you know, living, um, sad lives. Like it, what do you, the catastrophes already happened. This is it. This what what could be more this catastrophic? We never, yeah. you know, we never solved the issue of racism. Yeah. It still exists. Yeah. I mean, when, when people can write op-eds in the New York times and begin to insinuate once again, that somehow like this happened last week. So this, this guy, Charles Murray said that like once again, like white people are like the fact that there's a group of white people who can assert that mm-hmm. academically that white people are more intelligent on yeah. a genetic level than black yeah. people. I'm like, wait, 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 wait a second, wait a second. Like that, this is in, this is insanity mm-hmm. because it's like, okay, that's when you start to go. This is it does feel like history repeating itself in the yeah. sense of like these are the kind of arguments that get made. Uh, in countries where a populace is slowly being conditioned and is slowly yeah. being formed towards believing something. And like it's that, like, you know, for all my friends who are Christians who, who are, um, come from a different background culturally or ethnically or are black or Indian or, um, you know, from Pakistan or, you know, any East Asian country or whatever, mm-hmm. like it's just such a awkward time. Sure. Because it's like on one hand, you don't want to gauge whether someone sees you for you and loves you for, for all of you, yeah. embraces all of you by what they say on the internet. Right. Because it's just the internet. Sure. Yet at the same time, it's like if people don't say anything. Right. Right. And, um, and it is so it's it's a it's a weird time because it is it's a it's a marketplace of ideas yes yes and there are dominant views and ideas that are like being made assertively um in from multiple different angles mm-hmm. and it is it's it it deeply entrenches people totally and so you know, that's why you, you know, I think to bring it full circle to even this conversation, it's that that's, we've just once again described the, maybe the, the main reason why the spirit is doing a, a reconciliatory work yes. of unity in yes. the church. Yes. And how radical and groundbreaking that really is in every way that, you know, that for, even small steps towards unity in a, in a culture like ours, as polarized as we are, how remarkable that really is. Right. And weird again that those things happen simultaneously, like this thing's being so fragmented and fractured, and at the same time, God's doing things that feel so unprecedented. It's just such a wild and interesting time to be alive. <laughs> so strange. <laughs> yes, it is. Mm. Well, Matt, thank you for taking up so much of your night. This has been an amazing conversation, just extraordinary. I so appreciate just your generosity and your graciousness well, and thank openness. You. This is really beautiful. I'm glad this is your first podcast. I mean, it, it, 
I hope they won't all be marathons for you. Like yeah, this. no, no. I'm so like, oh, this has been so great well, for my own soul, man. You're gonna so spend good. you're gonna spend the next month like editing. This. That's right. Just releasing small yeah, segments, maybe small chunks. But no, so appreciate it, Matt. This Thank has you. really been a wonderful night, and just appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Yeah, man. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Like an LP, each episode is divided into side A and side B. Side A could be a sermon, a conversation with a guest, but will always introduce some idea. Side B will always be a creative exploration of that idea through music, question answering with listeners, or quirky rabbit trails off of side A for people who want the deep cuts, not just the singles. No matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will be a resource in helping you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. For more, go to jonathanmartinwords.com and sign up for our email list. Have a good day.